You know, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is found in Acts 19, where we find the story of the Apostle Paul having spent some time in the city known as Ephesus. And the passage reads that God was doing some extraordinary miracles by using Paul in Ephesus. So much and so that when Paul was casting out demons and healing sicknesses, and you know, that time Paul was working as a tent maker in Ephesus, and so they would take his apron and his handkerchief and anything that he'd even touched, and they'd grab them and they'd take them, and, and people were even casting out demons with those. He was doing some mighty works in Ephesus. Well, there were some itinerant Jewish exorcists and they were watching all of these things and they got in their mind that, you know, I think we got the formula. All we need to do is say Paul's name and then toss in this Jesus of Nazareth's name and we should be able to cast out demons and do all these kind of mighty works as well. Well, so they tried it. So they grabbed this guy who's full of all kinds of evil spirits and the evil spirit, according to scripture, speaks to these, they're called the seven sons of Sceva. These are these itinerant Jewish exorcists, the seven sons of Sceva. And they're trying to cast out demons and the demon speaks to them and the demon says, uh, look, we know who Jesus is and we know who Paul is, but who are you? As the story is told, the next time we see the seven sons of Sceva, they are naked and running through their lives through the streets of Ephesus as these demons have jumped on them for trying to evoke some magic incantation using the name of Paul and of Jesus. And he asked them, who are you? And that question I have for you this morning as well. Who are you? How would you answer that question? Is your identity related to your family name? Is who you are, what you do, your occupation? In America, I have to confess, a large part of our identities are tied into our jobs and what we do. Now, I don't care what party you go to, what backyard barbecue, what soiree, within one or two questions, people will always ask you the same thing. What do you do? Where do you work? In your bulletin, I want to invite you to write something down. On the back, you have uh, three points I'm going to make. But I want you to write down the question, who am I? No doubt you have a lot of questions this morning. Where are you going to go for lunch? Who is this guy up here asking questions? We'll get back to some of these, and in particular, this business of who are you? But now we turn to the book of Colossians. 
Now that that we've learned from our study from the book of Colossians is that the author of this letter, and that's what the book actually is, it's a letter to new converts in the city of Colossae. We know that Paul had never personally met any of these new converts, and most scholars would agree that God used Paul to lead a man named Epaphras to saving faith while he was in Ephesus, that same Ephesus where those seven sons of Sceva were. So while he's in Ephesus, he brings Epaphras to saving faith, and it's Epaphras who goes to Colossae and preaches the word there. And so because in large measure of Paul's work there in Ephesus, we have these new converts and a new church that's set up in this little town called Colossae. We learned the last time that you and I had a chance to talk, Paul had never met these new converts and they had never met him as well. They are receiving a letter from a person that they've never met and he is a prisoner under house arrest at this time and being accused of being a troublemaker. Now I can't linger here, but I think it's important to note that the work of the Holy Spirit in affirming God's truths, even in spite of these really odd circumstances, it would have been easy for them to discount something from Paul. They didn't know him, hadn't met him. He's locked up. They said, well, how can this guy have favor from God? I mean, he's locked up. But God supernaturally allowed them to hear the truth, even in light of what arguably were very odd circumstances. In his letter, Paul is praying for these new believers he's never met. He writes to push back against false teaching, to encourage them, and to remind them of some truths. And three truths he presents today in the passage that we are going to look at. And that is explaining the miraculous feat of reconciliation, how this has taken place in their life. And so what Paul is doing in the passage we will now look at, he asks and he answers the question, who are you? By teaching who you were, who you presently are, and who you will be in the future. I invite you, if you would, please, to turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 21. If you don't have a Bible in the seat back in front of you, we have one. It's page 983 in your Bible. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul starts off this query by stating, 
Let me remind you who you were prior to receiving Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. He tells them, if we look at the text, that you were alienated from God. That word alienated means estranged. Before you came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were alienated, estranged from God. He suggests that you worshiped false gods. You worshiped idols. Religious rituals, though they were practiced, they couldn't save you from sin and from guilt. And you were separated from God and spiritual blessings. And that's what sin does in our lives, beloved. It separates us from the fellowship of God and it separates us from spiritual blessings. Now, in our culture, we don't talk a lot about the reality of sin. In fact, many of the things that God calls sin in our culture today, we call entertainment. We are sinning and grinning. Sin separates us from God. It breaks our fellowship. It cuts off our spiritual blessings. And that's not because God isn't powerful. No, God is powerful. But it's like going outside on a sunny day and you got a big black golf umbrella and you open the umbrella. The sun is still shining, but you don't get the benefit of any of its rays. You don't feel the warmth from the sun. You don't get the benefit of the vitamin D or the ultraviolet. You're in the shadow cut off from its benefits because of sin blocking your fellowship with God. The consequences of sin causes dissipation, deterioration, decay, death, and eternal separation from God. When sin entered into the perfect world that God had created, it set the world and humanity on a course of deterioration and death. Your sin, he reminds them, had alienated you from God. This is who you were. In addition to being separated from God, notice in the text he says, you were enemies with God in your mind. As if being estranged wasn't bad enough, we are enemies with God in our minds. That word enemy here, he's saying that you are openly hostile to God, and that starts with the way that you think. Paul echoes this sentiment in Romans 1, where he says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy and murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, 
Though they know God's righteous decrees, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give appro approval to those who practice them. He's saying in the recesses of our minds, before we've come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are enemies with God. Because I guess in our mind, we can think all kinds of things, that there is no God. He's not my God. Who put him in charge of me? I don't even think I believe there's God. I'm going to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, the way I want to do it. And Paul warns that these evil thoughts produce evil acts. Thoughts and acts, each tainted by sin, pushing each other into further dissipation. This is where he says you were. This was your plight. This is who you were. But then he reminds them and praise God. Now let me tell you who you are as a result of this reconciliation. He says, yet now, this is who you were, but yet now you are reconciled to God. Now, in this section, Paul reminds them that they've been reconciled to God, and he explains to them how the reconciliation occurred, who's responsible for it, and why. The literal meaning of this word reconciliation actually means literally to thoroughly change. Hmm. Well, what changed? How is it that they were reconciled. What could be so thoroughly changed? Did God change? Did God change his standard? Did he lower the bar regarding holiness? No, it may never be said. God doesn't change. He's always been holy. He's holy now. He'll always be holy. He's always been just. He'll always be just. He is almighty. He is full of grace. He is truthful. So God didn't change. Or maybe you ask, well, the world must have changed. Did it? Has it? We need only look at any daily newspaper to know the answer to that question. Evil, disobedience, violence, corruption, our common fare in our culture. Parents are killing their children. And people who are going simply to worship the God that they serve are at risk in parts of the world of dying and have died because of cowardly acts of violence. The world didn't change, and God didn't change. So what is it then that did change? The barrier. The barrier that existed between God and creation was eliminated at the cross. By Jesus' death on the cross, we, they, us, are reconciled to God through Jesus. And Jesus was uniquely qualified to reconcile us to God. In fact, I submit to you, he's the only one who was qualified to reconcile us to God. You see, Jesus was God in the flesh. He is the one who created all things. 
He's the one that has authority over all things. When we were without strength to save ourselves, he reconciled us. When we were unable to be good enough to live up to a holy standard, he reconciled us. And yet, while we were yet sinners, he reconciled us. People want to say a lot about Jesus. He's a good teacher because he taught. He's so much more than a good teacher. I'm reminded of that Jamaican song, Jesus, bigger than what people say. I love that song because it has a lot of theology in it. Jesus, bigger than what people say. He bigger than the mountain, bigger than the hill, bigger than the doctor, he bigger than the pills, he bigger than the problems, he bigger than it all. He's Jesus, the Lord of all. He's bigger than death, he's bigger in life. He's Jesus, my savior for life. Oh, I love the song because it's telling the truth about who he is. Eyes haven't seen or ears heard who he really is. The Alpha and Omega, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and he alone was worthy to redeem and to reconcile. That's what was accomplished on the cross. And he's telling them, look at the text. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. How was it accomplished? By Jesus on the cross. Who did it? Jesus himself. Why? When Jesus went to that cross, he lived a perfect life, never committed one sin. Now, I want you to get your mind around that for a minute. As a teenager, never told a lie, never took a cookie that didn't belong to him. As a young adult, never compromised in his purity with anyone else. 33 years he walked this earth perfect. When he went to the cross, God poured out the full measure of his wrath on Jesus. He looked at Jesus as though Jesus had lived my life. So that now, because of his atoning sacrifice, God looks at us, those that have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, as though we had lived Jesus's life. Scripture tells us we're now clothed in his righteousness. And he sees us now, holy, blameless, without reproach. When Jesus died on the cross, we were justified by faith, clothed in his righteousness. He paid the penalty for our sins. He ransomed us and snatched us from the abyss, removed the barrier to reconciliation so that now those that call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ can be saved. He's the who, he's the how, 
Why? So that we could have fellowship with God. So that you and I could be restored in a position of fellowship with our Creator. He loved us that much that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Holy, set apart. Does that mean that now we don't commit any other sins? You know better. While we are here on this side of glory, this is called sanctification. God is working with us. He is constantly molding us. We learn and we grow. We confess and we grow. We serve and we grow. But he has set us apart and the penalty for our sins has been paid. The term blameless without blemish. As in when they made sacrifices, the priests were required to bring a sacrifice without blemish. He's using the terms from there. And he says now that we stand before God above reproach, that is, without accusation. Hmm. We certainly enter a time that encourages people to be very critical about anything and everything. And I think from time to time, Satan himself likes to buffet us with our past. When Satan would try to remind you of who you were, you just praise God and you thank God for bringing you out of captivity. When he tries to remind you of who you were, you thank God for paying the penalty for your sin. When he tries to bring up your past, you just thank God for the ransom that he's paid. And when Satan wants to bring up your past, you just keep reminding him of how far God has brought you and that he's brought you from a mighty long way. When Satan wants to remind you of your past, beloved, you thank God that you're not that person anymore, but you go ahead and you remind Satan of his future. That is not to say that sin does not have consequences. It does. When lives are shattered by sin, it's like breaking a ceramic cup. Now, sometimes we can put those pieces back together and the object may be aesthetically pleasing. There are sometimes though, little pieces that just don't come back. The good news is, is that God can take those shattered pieces, he can refire the kiln, put them in there and reshape them, remold them, and make them productive for his service. Who you will be. Hmm. We need to talk about verse 23. If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. That if 
is a little troubling because it, it suggests that we could lose our salvation. And is this what Paul is suggesting here? That, okay, you were alienated from God. You were estranged from him. You harbored really evil thoughts in your mind and those evil thoughts led to evil acts. But praise God, Jesus removed the barrier and permits us now to be reconciled. But then we got this if for verse 23. Is he saying that our salvation can be lost? No. He isn't. He's really drawing a architectural image here. One of the things that we know is that the city of Colossae was located in a region that was known for earthquakes. And so that phrase here, not being shifted, not being moved, carries that connotation of what would happen during a time of an earthquake. So what he's saying is not that you will lose your salvation. He's more talking about, from an architectural standpoint, the foundation upon which you are standing or resting. If you are truly saved, built upon the solid foundation, then you will continue in faith and nothing will move you. This is how he puts it. Dr. Warren Wearsby puts it this way. You are not saved by continuing in faith, but we continue in faith, which demonstrates that we are saved. He doesn't suggest there that we can lose our salvation, but he is saying that if you are saved, you are built upon the firmest of foundations. Your profession of faith will be in the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing else. And your conduct now will be changed as a result of it. And that conduct will be your witness to everyone who sees you. The hope of the gospel to be with God in glory. Hmm. We have who we are now being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, reconciled to God, renewing our minds, making us new creations, but then we have the hope to be with God in glory. Jesus, the reconciler, our redeemer, this truth is proclaimed now to all the world and we come full circle to where we started a few moments ago. Who are you? Are you what you do? Doctor, lawyer, school teacher, architect? Are you what you've achieved? Your awards, your citations, your bonuses? Are you defined by the things that you've done right? Or are you defined by the things that you've done wrong? Or are you defined by what other people say about you? The world is constantly trying to define us and separate humanity. Rich against poor, young against old, black against 
white Republicans against Democrats. We are culturally constantly being pitted one against each other. I'm reminded, beloved, of the great ship Titanic. On the Titanic, in today's money, a first-class ticket on the Titanic would be about $100,000. Serious money for the rich, the elite. And you had first class, and then second class, and third class, and steerage, and then you had servants' quarters, and then you had quarters for the boiler room crew. But beloved, all these things to separate and define people didn't mean anything. When that list was finally posted, people fell into one of two categories. You were either saved or you were lost. Who are you? Are you separated from God by your sin? Are you an enemy of God? because of your thinking. Perhaps you're here this morning and you have unconfessed sin in your life. Your thinking has made you indifferent to the things of God, to his word and his will in your life. Perhaps you convinced yourself that I'll look into this thing about Jesus some other time. Now it's not the right time for that. You know, I've, I want to travel. I'm up for a promotion. I got more important things going on in my life than to spend any time coming to somebody's church listening to a bunch of sermons. It really doesn't matter if I go to church. I don't have to go to church. I don't have to read a Bible. I mean, I kind of just know what's right and wrong, and let's face it. I'm a lot better than most of my friends. Maybe you're a believer and you've surrendered some ground in your mind to evil thoughts. You've been harboring some things that you know you just shouldn't even be thinking about. I want to invite you this morning to repent Agree what God has to say about those things and turn from them. Admit that they're not godly. They're not God-honoring. They aren't consistent with his word. And that they are dangerous. And will cause you to sin. I'm asking you plain. The most important thing in our lives is not what other people think about us. A very wise man told me long ago, what other people think about you, Larry, is none of your business. I didn't understand that then. <laughs> I'm coming to understand it. The most important thing in our lives is not what other people think about us, or how we look in the sight of other people. Beloved, the most important thing in our lives is what does God say about you? And how do you look in his sight?
for those who have come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ through God's grace, through that act of reconciliation on the cross, they can now say, I'm a child of the living God. For those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they can say, I'm restored in my fellowship and reconciled to him. I am, praise God, a brand new creation in Christ, one that has been chosen by God, holy and blameless before him. I am a living trophy of God's grace. When God wants to brag about grace, all he need do is say, you want to know about grace? I got a trophy. Look at that rascal, Larry McCarthy. That's a trophy of my grace. Those that are in the Lord Jesus Christ now are his workmanship, his masterpiece. That's what Ephesians 2.10 tells us. We're now heirs to the kingdom of heaven. We're ministers of reconciliation. We are anointed by God himself. And make no mistake about it, we are loved. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. I'm asking you plain, who are you? Are you loved? Does he know you? Do you know him? You don't have to stay alienated estranged, separated by sin. That's the good news this morning. We're not asking you to join anything, to sign up for anything. You keep your money in your pocket. You can't buy your way into heaven and your credentials mean absolutely nothing. What God wants, the sacrifice that he wants, is a broken spirit and a contrite heart and a mind that has come to repentance. A mind that says, I don't want to live like this anymore. A mind that says, there is a God and I want to know him. A mind that says, I believe. Every head's bowed. Every eye is closed. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word, for its truth, and for its saving power. We ask now and we cry out, Father, for mercy. For those who know you, who have accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, saints, I'm asking you to pray now. The enemy comes hard now, trying to snatch away truth, trying to create doubt and confusion. He comes hard now. Would you pray? The Holy Spirit himself is bringing to your mind someone that you know right now who isn't saved. Just go ahead and pray for them. It could be a son or a daughter or a cousin, a nephew, a next-door neighbor. Cry out to God for them right now. That God would be merciful. Maybe you've surrendered some territory and you need to repent. Ask God to forgive you.
If you're sitting here and you've never trusted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to do so now. All you really need do is say, Lord Jesus, save me. I believe what I've heard. I confess my sins. And I want this relationship that has been talked about this morning. Every head's bowed, every eye is closed. That's your prayer. I want to pray with you now. Wherever you are, wherever you're seated, I just ask you to put your hand up so I can pray with you. Nobody's looking around. I want to pray for you. I see your hand. God bless you. I see your hand. God bless you. I see your hand. I see your hand. Thank you, Father. I see your hand. I see you. Thank you, Lord. I see you. Father, for those who have lifted their hands this morning and those that have prayed this morning, would you give them a fresh appreciation of your love and sovereignty right now? Quicken them, Father, right now. Save them right now. Our prayer partners are coming. If you need a Bible, I'm going to give you one. If you need prayer, we're going to pray with you. They'll be down here up front, and that's where I'm going to be. And for those who've raised their hands, come down and let's pray together. Father, I thank you. Help them as only you can now. Encourage them as only you can. We pray in the matchless name of Jesus and amen.